Spirit 88.9 FM, we are Catholic Radio for the Christian Community. Good morning. You're tuned in to Spirit Mornings with Bruce McGregor and Chris McGregor. Today joined by Wesley Smith, author of the prize-winning Culture of Death, The Assault on Medical Ethics in America, and Consumer's Guide to a Brave New World. Also a book called Forced Exit. This is the one we're going to be talking about today, Euthanasia, Assisted Suicide, and the New Duty to Die. Wesley Smith, a bioethicist. Actually, this book has been reissued. And Wesley, we would like to welcome you to the program. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? Doing great, thanks. Thank you. Uh, Wesley, this is a fascinating work, uh, Forced Exit, Euthanasia, Assisted Suicide, and the New Duty to Die. You originally wrote this about 10 years ago? Uh, The original hardcover version of the book came out in 1997. Uh, because this uh, is an issue that um, has been moving quite fast, that deals not only with assisted suicide, but things like uh, uh, something called futile care theory, in which doctors are being given the right to refuse wanted life-sustaining treatment, uh, issues of the food and fluids cases like in the Terry Schiavo matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's been revised twice. This is the second updating and revision of it, and this is current through the death of Terry Schiavo. I was going to say that you must be very busy because the issues are evolving and changing continually. Yeah, as a matter of fact, you all in Nebraska are going to have an opportunity this November to strike a blow in favor of uh, the culture of life and against uh, forced exits. It is a it is a humane care amendment that would prevent doctors from removing wanted life-sustaining food and water uh, in institutions. And uh, I hope uh, your listeners will all pay attention to that uh, as uh, as the campaign develops. Uh, it, it is something that is very important in the life of our community, and I'm sure that our our listeners are. And that's one of the reasons we wanted to bring you on, because we wanted to talk about the issues that are surrounding euthanasia. For so many, even the term euthanasia is and eugenics and all the different types of things that are new terms. They don't really quite understand them. Well, eugenics is actually an old term that we thought had been buried and put to rest, but has revived. You mm-hmm. know, eugenics movement uh, was uh, created uh, by the tra- uh, cousin of Charles Darwin, a fellow named Francis Galton in, the, in England. Mm-hmm. He believed that there was such a thing as the fit and the unfit when it comes to human life. And, of course, people like him were the fit, right? That, right. Isn't that mm-hmm. always the case? Yes. Yep. We decide to create hierarchies of human life. It's always my side that's the good side. Uh, and he um, uh, he wanted to have the good people bounteously procreate. It really got disturbing here in America because a fellow named Charles Davenport, who was a biologist and funded by the Carnegie uh, Institute Foundation, uh, put together Cold Spring Harbor and began negative eugenics, that is, active activism to prevent the unfit from procreating, as a consequence of which in this country, Sixty to 70,000 Americans were involuntarily sterilized wow. uh, between 1908 and, say, the early 60s, and it was completely approved by the United States Supreme Court in an 8-to-1 decision called Buck v. Bell, in which Oliver Wendell Holmes said three generations of idiots is enough, mm. allowing a woman named Carrie Buck to be sterilized only because her mother was a prostitute, and after she'd been raped by a foster relative, she had given birth out of wedlock. So... The eugenicists decided that she was feeble-minded by, due to the uh, rules of genetics and eugenics and, and so forth, and, and this woman was sterilized. Mm. Amazing. And, and uh, so, the, you know, here's the, here's the key issue in all of my work, and I didn't realize this until about a year to a year and a half ago. The key question of the 21st century, and I really want your listeners to ponder this, is does human life 
have intrinsic value simply and merely because it is human. Mm -hmm. In other words, does being human matter? Does the fact that an organism or an entity is, is human, does that give it moral value just without having to earn it through having uh, you know, various characteristics? If we say yes to that question, which I uh, assert strongly, and certainly the Catholic Church asserts strongly, yes. Absolutely. Uh, that, um, that then we have a chance for universal human rights. Then we have a chance to care for the most weak and vulnerable among us. Then we, of course, have an obligation to visit the prisoners and to visit the sick and do all of the things that make uh, human society distinctly human, caring, compassionate, loving, involved. If we say no to that question, as the eugenicists did, the eugenicists said, well, no, there's the fit and there's the unfit. Mm-hmm. That leads irrevocably and inevitably to oppression and harassment and exploitation and even killing. So today in bioethics, for example, you have bioethicists saying, well, it isn't being human that gives value, it's being a, quote, person. And in order to be a person, you have to have sufficient cognitive capacities to qualify. And that, that means that there is such a thing in this thinking as a human non-person, and that means all unborn life. That means uh, uh, newborn babies, because newborn babies can't value their own lives, mm-hmm. right. of the issues, uh, or they're not self-aware over time, that kind of thing. Therefore, you have Peter Singer of Princeton University, one of the most prominent bioethicists in the world, uh, asserting in the L.A. Times and other places that infanticide is perfectly proper. Right. Wow. Uh, and, and people like Terry Schiavo are deemed non-persons because she's lost those capacities. But during uh, her dehydration, I had a debate with a bioethicist, and I said, do you think Terry Schiavo is a, p- a person? This was on court TV on an online debate. And mm-hmm. she said, no, I don't. And I said, should her organs then therefore be able to be taken instead of having her food and water taken away? He said, yes. Oh, dear. Wow. Advocacy uh, in, bio- in utilitarian bioethics and in the organ transplant community to redefine death, to include a diagnosis of what's called a persistent vegetative state. I don't like that term. Yeah. Uh, and it's not being done. I want to emphasize that. We're not uh, yet uh, killing people like Terry Schiavo for their organs, but there are a lot of people who want to do it. And that comes from saying no to the question I posed. You have people wanting to create... Um, uh, human cloned embryos for the purpose of destruction. That comes, that willingness to do that comes from saying no to the question I posed. Uh, what the uh, Humane Care Amendment in Nebraska will do in, in November is say, wait a second, people who are in very uh, severe and catastrophic illnesses, their lives have equal value. Therefore, you cannot cut off wanted life-sustaining food and water. Uh, that will be coming in Nebraska in November. I think that's such an important thing to understand because, as you point out in the book, uh, essentially what we're doing is we're creating a cast of disposable people. Exactly. And so when you look at what happened to Terry. Mm -hmm. Terry was supposedly dehydrated to death because supposedly she told her husband more than 20 years ago, back when they were not pulling feeding tubes, by the way, Mm -hmm. that uh, she wouldn't want to have tubes. Yet she had parents who wanted to care for her. She, had, she was a living, breathing human being, and what really happened there was a view, an, a view of, uh, of an incapacitated woman whose life wasn't worthy of life anymore. Uh, right now, Down syndrome babies aren't being allowed to be born. They're being wiped off the face of the earth by eugenic abortion and by other practices that are basically um, stating that these beautiful people you know, I've known Down syndrome people. Oh, yeah. Down, they're the most beautiful, loving, caring people I've ever met. But we don't want them in our world of perfection, do we? Mm-hmm. 
No, well, and, and certainly not. And then you have to argue the next case. What about autistic kids or kids with Asperger's? Or Did you know that in the U.K. right now, the uh, authorities there have permitted embryo selection and to discard embryos that might get adult-onset cancer. Oh, my. Wow. So this is, once you decide that we have the right to determine which human lives have greater value than other human lives, then you begin to start to hubristically, in my view, believe that we can create a more perfect world through these kinds of manipulations and what that ends up doing quite frequently is oppressing the weak and vulnerable. Right. And that's kind of the, the vision that Margaret Sanger had as well. Well, Margaret Sanger is very interesting. You know, I've read that she was against abortion, but she was certainly a wild eugenicist and, right. and, uh, and supported um, infanticide. Clarence Darrow, who was the hero of mine when I was growing up, and I thought, gee, I'd like to be a lawyer who represents the weak and vulnerable, he said that disabled children should be chloroformed. Oh, my. Wow. Uh, you had, uh, of all people, uh, Helen Keller was a eugenicist. I guess she thought that it would uh, not affect her because her disability was caused by illness instead of uh, genetics. Uh, it's, it's a terrible thing. <clears throat> you know, it's really important to say, wait a second, human life matters because it's human. We don't have to measure. We don't have to fold. We don't have to try to determine which life has more importance than other lives. Mm -hmm. And by the way, if we can do this person-non-person -person thing, mm -hmm. well, why can't we then say, okay, there's persons and non-persons, we'll get rid of the non-persons or we'll treat them as, as natural resources, harvestable crops, they'll lose the right to life if they're getting in our face or if they're causing us too much money or our, our emotional distress. But why can't we then begin to differentiate among the person category? Because after all, some people might have... Mm -hmm higher capacities of, of these uh, so-called relevant uh, characteristics than people who have lower capacities. Mm -hmm. And in fact, some of the futurists are now saying, well, we have to distinguish between persons and mature persons. So that process is already beginning because the principle has been established that human life is irrelevant to moral value. Another place where this is happening is in the animal liberation movement, and you all can, I'm sure, have heard the headlines of the violence occurring in support of animal rights. Yes. Mm -hmm. Well, that's because... The animal liberationists, I'm not talking about the SPCA that wants to spay dogs and make sure animals are treated properly. Right. Being unique and being exceptional, uh, human exceptionalism, not only gives us unique rights, but unique responsibilities. And one of those is to treat animals properly. Uh, because we know what pain is, and we have no right to cause gratuitous pain on, on other creatures. Mm -hmm. But what the animal liberationists are saying is, well, actually, what gives moral value isn't being human. It's the ability to feel pain. Therefore, since a cow feels pain and a human feels pain, we're morally equal. Therefore, cattle ranching is slavery, and animal research trying to find a cure for cancer is Mengele. And that fervent belief, as odd as that is for most of us who are listening to this, mm -hmm. is what is driving the violence that is increasing. There are now scientists who do necessary medical research who are being threatened with murder because yeah. of this belief. Yeah, yeah in incredible. It, it, they would threaten that life... To, to save an animal life. If you go to the materialistic Darwinism, I'm not talking about the science, but the philosophy, you have people now saying humans have no greater right to life or any other uh, right than any other animal on the planet because we're all part of the same ooze. You know, we came all out of the same primordial ooze. Right. Yeah, it, it's... It's crazy when you think about it, but it all goes back to dehumanizing, making uh, exactly that uh, right. our essence of who we are and who we are created to be and what separates us. You know, so I started with assisted suicide, and assisted suicide in, in my work 
um, you know, says, well, if, if you have, uh, if you want to kill yourself because your, your uh, children have been killed, well, we'll do suicide prevention. But if you say, oh, by the way, I have cancer, then we'll say, well, let us give you the pill. Well, what kind of message is that to people who are ill? Right. right. I've been a hospice volunteer, and I, I, the last patient I took care of was a fellow with ALS, Lugerich's disease, and he saw a lot of advocacy around uh, allowing euthanasia for people with his disease. And he was appalled and, and aghast. He said, they're telling me I don't belong in the lighted boulevards, but I belong in the dark alleys. They're trying to push me out of life. They're saying that my life isn't worth protecting. That is the message. Of, uh, even though it's not intended by most folk in assisted suicide, that's the message that is sent. And that says that the lives of severely ill and dying and disabled people do not have the same value as others and therefore are not worth protecting. Uh, that begins a through line that leads us with through eugenics, which, by the way, had a close connection to the old euthanasia movement, mm-hmm. that leads us to the cloning issue, that leads us to the dehydration issue, that leads us to the organ harvesting issue, and so forth and so on. It all comes from the idea that we lose sight of the exceptional importance and uniqueness of human life. Right. And even the action, uh, as you point out in your book, Wesley, is that the individual act of taking your own life is different than as opposed to the joint action of doctors or paraprofessionals assisting you in that extinguishing of life. Yeah, you know, people have the people say, I have a right to commit suicide. Well, you actually have the power to do it. I mean, if I wanted to commit suicide, I could be dead within five minutes. Mm-hmm. Anybody could be. The real question here is, what is the reaction to somebody who wants to kill themselves of a loving and caring community? Suicide used to be against the law, a crime, which was ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And so what they they decided to do, they realized that, wait a minute, this isn't a criminal law issue. This is a matter of mental health. And so even today, uh, if you are suicidal and, and the authorities believe and can prove beyond a reasonable doubt that you're a threat to yourself, you can be hospitalized and treated even against your will because it is the first duty of the state to protect its citizens, sometimes even against their own uh, depression and despair. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, so, but how many people, maybe people listening to this show today, would be dead today if somebody hadn't cared enough when they were suicidal to step in and say, no, there's another way. Mm-hmm. No, let me help you across this dark chasm. Let me help you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, and we'll get to the other side. You do have large organizations, and I, I, I don't understand their ultimate purpose, but the Hemlock Society, Death with Dignity Education Center, the Compassion and Dying Federation, whose money, when you go back, I, th- I thought it was interesting as you traced it, uh, like, the, like the CDF receives uh, money from George Soros, his Open Society Institute. There's a yeah. lot of big money. There's big money pushing this agenda. There's another group uh, called the Tide Foundation that uh, supports things like MoveOn.org, too, and that kind of thing, uh, for, for reasons that escape me. Uh, right. Assisted suicide has become a major left-wing cause. And what's really remarkable is, you know, I've written four books with Ralph Nader. I come out of a political liberalism. I call it Martin Luther King liberalism. Mm-hmm. And when I first started fighting euthanasia and assisted suicide, I thought, wow, let's get the left into this. And it, the doors were slammed shut. And I was stunned and I was furious. And I'm still appalled because liberalism, uh, as I perceive it, is protecting the weak and vulnerable against powerful forces. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that has ceased to, to, to be much of liberalism, with one exception, the most powerful and prominent opponents of assisted suicide and euthanasia in this country are the disability rights activists. Mm-hmm. 
mm. who have gone into a strange bedfellow coalition with Catholics and pro-lifers and medical professionals who disagree about abortion. Uh, the disability rights folk tend to be very secular. They tend to be uh, very um, uh, uh, pro-choice in their outlook in terms of abortion, uh, very liberal politically, many, many supporting, like, for example, gay marriage and things of that sort. And remember, I'm speaking generally here. Yes. Sure. Uh, but they have agreed, they see that they're the target. Disabled folk are the target. And they have put aside, as have pro-lifers, the differences they may have about other issues when it comes to assisted suicide and euthanasia. And the reason that assisted suicide has not spread beyond Oregon since 1994 was the entry into the fray by the disability rights folk and the pro-lifers and the disability rights folk and other strange political bedfellows agreeing, you know what, we have significant disagreements about other issues, but we agree here. And when the issue is assisted suicide, let's work together. Right. And I, I often give speeches to pro-life groups, and one of my messages has been on assisted suicide. You have to work with people who disagree with you about abortion. You're not strong enough yourself to stop it. I give the same message to pro-choice people on, on abortion saying you have to be willing to work with pro-lifers on this issue because you guys aren't strong enough to oppose it on your own. And you know what? The wisdom of people coming together and realizing, okay, we'll disagree about those other issues another day, but we're not going to allow people with disabilities to be killed because they're in despair and have uh, the society say, well, you know, good riddance to them. They were suffering and they were costing a lot of money because realize that also becomes an issue here, especially with regard to HMOs. You know, mm -hmm. there's oh, yeah. no cheaper medical treatment than assisted suicide. The drugs that kill somebody cost about 75 bucks. Wow. And if this became a medical treatment that was standard across the nation, considering the cost of health care, considering the number of uninsured, can imagine what could happen. Yeah. And, and it's so often in this debate on assisted suicide, you hear the, I call it euthanasia land, you know, where every doctor is Marcus Welby, every family is the Waltons. It'll only be done when nothing else can be done to alleviate suffering. And they ignore the real-world dysfunction of elder abuse and, and financial strains and family difficulties and life insurance and inheritance. They don't want to talk about that because that's the real world. Yep. They don't want to talk about what's happened in, in uh, the Netherlands, where, right. which, where euthanasia has been allowed since 1973, and they're now killing babies born with birth defects. Peter Singer's activism is now being carried out in the Netherlands with support from some intelligentsia here in America. Yeah. They kill elderly people. They kill a 1,000 people a year who haven't even asked for it. The, you know the example I gave of the mother whose children had died? She was assisted, to, a woman like that was assisted in suicide uh, in the Netherlands, and the Dutch Supreme Court said that was right, because mm. suffering is suffering, and it doesn't matter whether it's physical, wow. whether it's emotional. And so depressed people can be assisted in suicide now in the Netherlands. 8% of all infants who die in the Netherlands in repeated studies are killed by doctors. 31% of pediatricians have killed babies. So much for the Hippocratic Oath. Well, the Hippocratic Oath is being cast aside and, and talked about as something archaic. And in fact, there was a big article in the uh, New England Journal of Medicine, which some of us call the New Euthanasia Journal of Medicine, Oh my! Uh, in which Sherwin Newland, who's a very prominent doctor, wrote How We Die, very prominent bioethicist from Yale, said what matters at the bedside is the doctor's individual conscience. Well, mm. that's <laughs> true, then the doctor ceases to be a professional. Yeah. Because what if the doctor's conscience says, I don't like uh, gay people and this gay man has HIV, I'm not going to treat him properly. You, you can't do that. If you're a physician, you give optimal care to every patient. You don't judge that patient's moral worth. 
Well, it's it's relativism uh, at its extreme. And this is where absolutely it, right. And it becomes postmodernism. That is, facts don't matter. What matters is narratives and stories. And that, that's, a, that's no way to have science. Right. Now, one of the other things, too, Wesley, that we've heard that you have to kind of watch out for these days, because a lot of this is beginning to seep into mainstream medicine and, 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 uh, and doctors and so on and so forth, is actually when you check into a hospital, you've got to be very aware of a lot of the paperwork and stuff that's there, don't you? Especially when it comes to issues of sustaining your life. Well, this, this becomes important. I'm a supporter of advanced medical directives. That is, uh, telling, you know, signing a document saying the kind of treatment you want, the kind of treatment you don't want. Mm-hmm. I don't believe in living wills because that gives the doctors the power. I, right. think, I believe in durable powers of attorney where you give somebody you trust and love the power. It might be a spouse, it might be a child, it might be a good friend, it might be a priest, whoever it is. And therefore you have somebody who represents your values helping make decisions uh, in the hospital. But what's beginning to happen in some places uh, is what I talked about a little earlier, futile care theory, where hospital ethics committees are being given the power to refuse wanted life-sustaining treatment mm-hmm. uh, so that the patient dies rather than lives based on, not on whether the treatment won't work, but because it will work. That is, it, it actually keeps the patient alive, and, uh, and a lot of these ethics committees, not all of them, and we don't know which hospitals have these protocols and which don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, that and the ones that do have these protocols, if the ethics committee and the doctor vote that your life isn't worth sustaining, your life-sustaining treatment ceases. Yeah. In Texas, they have a law that permits this explicitly, and now you're seeing major cases beginning to boil up uh, and controversies uh, over that in Texas. And now they're beginning to look to uh, try not to have the law. Uh, in, in, uh, and again, in, in your state, Nebraska, there's going to be the Humane Care Amendment on the November ballot that won't uh, deal with issues like respirators, it won't deal with issues like surgeries or anything like that, but it, will, it says that if, if a patient and family want food and water to be provided to the patient, uh, and that food and water can be assimilated, that is, it, it's not something like in the end stage of dying, sometimes people stop eating, and that's part of the dying process. Yes. Mm-hmm. But not in that circumstance. Doctors and institutions and, and so forth can't take it away over objection. And I think that's a very good line to draw in the sand to begin to say, listen, uh, you know, we're not going to allow other people to decide whether our loved ones or I have a quality of life worth living. Mm-hmm. It's so important, and as you point out in a very balanced way in your book, too, that we need to create a culture of compassion. Absolutely, and, and compassion, the root, the root meaning of compassion, the root is to suffer with. Mm-hmm. You know, assisted suicide isn't suffering with. Assisted suicide, even though this is not the intent of people often, is discarding. Mm-hmm. Suffering yeah. with is hospice. Suffering with is going in and holding the hand of somebody. You know, uh, my friend Bob, who I mentioned earlier, who uh, had a hospice, who was in, I met in hospice and had ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. He was suicidal for two and a half years, he said. And I asked him why. He said, and these are words that, that just stuck with me. This is a quote. He said, first my friends stopped visiting me. Then my friends stopped calling me. Then my friends stopped calling my wife. And I felt like a token presence in the world. He felt isolated, alone, and abandoned. And his friends weren't coming to visit him because they said, well, gee, I might say something that'll hurt him. I don't know how to react. And what the friends were really saying is, I don't want to feel the pain of seeing my friend in a, in a state of, of decline. Right. Right. We have to overcome our own fears and our own uh, grief 
and love people. Uh, love them to the end. Be there for them. Uh, let them know they're still us and not them. Let them know that they are part of the loving community. Get them to church when that's possible. If it's not possible, visit them. Make sure they know that they're cared for, loved, and, and that the family is cared for and loved. Nobody in this country should die alone. Mother Teresa had the right idea about that. I mean, she took it to the ultimate degree. She was walking through the streets, taking people who had maggots infestation and taking them to her hospice and caring for them until they died. Mm -hmm. That is the epitome of, of Christianity. Uh, but you don't have to be a Christian to do that. You have to be a human being. That's part of being human. That's right. And, and it is. A euthanasia is so, it's so anti-family. It's so anti-community. It is, and it, and it, and it separates that, um, that, that continuity that says, you know, we matter from the begin time of the beginning until the time of the natural end. It, it interferes with that. Uh, there's a wonderful um, uh, illusion or metaphor in the Bible about, you know, uh, the healthy community is the one with the kids who are playing in the streets as the woman on the walking stick walks by, you know? Mm -hmm. Yes. It's all part of a continuity, and we all have obligations and, and, and during, uh, to each other during each and every aspect of, of life. And sometimes, by the way, this struck me, uh, sometimes our obligation is to be a um, gracious receiver of care because a lot of us want to give care. That's right. Some of us find it very difficult to receive it. And sometimes the greatest gift we can give to others is when we need help to accept it graciously and thankfully. Right. Yeah, yeah. It's, all, it's, it's a circle of compassion, actually. Exactly right. It's almost like a perpetual motion machine. Yeah. I and give it when I can, and when I need it, it's there for me. Absolutely. And certainly, Wesley, we, we have to, as Catholics, Catholic Christians, Christians in general, be very, very aware of the fact that uh, this euthanasia and assisted suicide and everything is, is, they try and couch that under that umbrella of compassion that you were talking about. It's a, it's a false compassion, and it's a distortion of the word. In fact, the term euthanasia is a distortion of the word. It used to mean, back in the, before the mid-19th century, dying in a state of grace, uh, surrounded by your families, a peaceful and pain-free death. That's what euthanasia used to mean. Mm -hmm. was uh, co-opted by the death pushers. And now, unfortunately, we're stuck with it. It means mercy killing. Yeah. But yeah. that's not the original meaning of euthanasia, which means good death. Right. Wow. Well, a very sobering conversation here, Wesley. We want to thank you. Bioethicist Wesley Smith, author of the book Forced Exit, Euthanasia, Assisted Suicide, and The New Duty to Die. Wesley, we do appreciate your being with us and our listeners this morning. Well, thanks for uh, calling me, and I, I'd love to talk with you again sometime. We would love to have you back, Wesley, because we need uh, persons who have the, uh, the passion and the conviction to help us break open truths that they're going to continue. Unfortunately, I feel you'll have to have yet another edition of this book down the road because the forces that are pushing this will continue to find other ways of couching their, their stances. Yep. Well, not if we uh, all engage and uh, beat them back, but you may be right. All right. And, uh, <laughs> Thank don't you very much for the good interview. I appreciate it. Absolutely. And don't forget to visit uh, Wesley's website, everyone, www.wesleywesleyjsmith.com. Uh, you can find out uh, all kinds of information there. Again, Wesley, thanks. God bless. Thanks a lot.